We looked last week at that great event of Pentecost. As the Holy Spirit came down upon the disciples, all 120 of them, and His power was made known and manifested through the speaking of a multitude of languages. This morning we'll be looking at the explanation of that event. The explanation that is inspired. We'll be looking at the inspired commentary of the Apostle Peter. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's Word. It's not a short passage, but it is short for a sermon. So let's hear now what the Lord will tell us through the Apostle Peter. This is the very Word of God. It is inerrant. It is sufficient. It is authoritative. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Nazareth, excuse me, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. 
being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would take this word spoken by your servant Peter and written down by your servant Luke and that you would use it, Lord, in our hearts this very day because it has as much meaning, as much significance, and as much relevance as the day it was spoken and the day it was written. For it is your very words, O Lord, the very words of the one and only true and living God. We ask all this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this morning, you have the opportunity to hear me preach the greatest sermon of the New Testament era. Well, maybe it would be better said to preach on the greatest sermon of the New Testament era. Because that's indeed what this is. It's a sermon that is preached and 3,000 men, women, and children are added to the church of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. It's not just that it is a raw 3,000 number. They came in 120 and after one sermon became more than 3,000. In rough numbers, that means we should expect 6,000 converts this morning. You see, this is the power of the Word of God. We're going to see what Peter has to say about this great event. And it is interesting that there is far much more text related to Peter's explanation of this miraculous event than in the illustration or showing of the miraculous event in Acts chapter 2. That alone should tell us something about how God works it helps us to put Pentecost into perspective. You see, Pentecost is not about tongues. It's not about languages. It's not about cloven tongues of fire. We're not even sure what that looks like. 
No, Pentecost is about witnessing to the risen, resurrected Lord of all, Jesus Christ. That is what Pentecost is about. You see, our Lord is all-knowing and all-wise. And so he uses the most significant date on the calendar, the Passover and Pentecost season, in which, as I said last week, Jerusalem would swell like a college football town to ten times its size. And then as if just for added measure, to make sure that the audience is listening to the very words of Peter, the words that God has given to him, he brings out this miraculous working of tongues and everyone is stopped dead in their tracks. You see, the tongues were there to get their attention that Peter could tell them about Jesus. That is Pentecost in perspective. The last thing that I want us to see preliminarily is the change in Peter. He goes from being so timid that he denies his Lord in his hour of greatest need to looking at the ground and not being able to even speak to his Lord as Jesus restores him to fellowship, to being able to speak and give advice amongst the disciples themselves, and now he stands out in the temple. And the picture you must have is that as Peter speaks, as I am from a risen place, in the corners are those who judged Jesus and crucified him. Perhaps there are even a few on the sides holding stones in their hands. You see, this is Jerusalem. This is the place where they yelled, crucify him. And Peter, with all boldness, picks up right where our Lord left off. And so what I would like us to see is, in Peter's sermon, three points. There are many more, but we'll boil them down. Peter is basically preaching about three things. First, he is preaching about the sovereign work of God. The sovereign work of God. And then, in the middle of his sermon, he moves and begins preaching about the work of Jesus Christ. After he sets the stage with the sovereign work of God, he begins to preach on the work of Jesus Christ. But Peter is not a lecturer. He is not a university professor. He does not simply give information. After he has told them of the sovereign work of God and the work of Jesus Christ, he preaches a call to salvation. He presses that work home. And this becomes a model, not just for yours truly, but it becomes a model for every one of you that have any opportunity to speak to friends, neighbors, family members about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's dive in then and see what it looks like to preach Jesus. First, Peter begins by preaching the sovereign work of God. Now, this is the first sermon of the Christian era. It is the first sermon of Peter. There are 15 sermons in the book of Acts. You might think of Acts, we all think of Paul and his missionary journeys, but that's the latter half of Acts. We might think of really the first half of Acts being Peter-centered and the second half being Paul-centered. And in these 15 sermons preached by Peter and by James and by Paul, there is a common thread. It is the kernel of the gospel. And Peter is going to begin by expounding this. The common thread of the gospel is the sovereignty of God. 
It is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is the call to repentance. And so the first thing that we see is that God in His sovereignty speaks in His Word. Now, this is something I think many of us, whether we are Christians or whether we have just grown up in a Christian culture, take for granted. People talk about the Bible as God's Word. But you see, Christianity is the religion where God is not silent. All other religions... God is somewhere off in a distance. He does not speak to us. Oh, he might perhaps have one of his prophets or some holy man say some words of wisdom, but he does not bring his very word in any other way than in the Bible. The Quran is not the word of Allah. It is the word of Muhammad. Buddha leaves teachings. There is no other religion in which God speaks, and He speaks to you and to me. God has chosen to do this sovereignly. And Peter understands this. He understands that the Word is authoritative for our lives. You may hear me use that as part of a little phrase every time I read the Scriptures, and I don't tire of it. One of the things I say is that the Word is authoritative, because it is Notice what happens here in verse 14 and following. There has been a miraculous, astounding event. You can imagine there are people all around in the crowd, jaws wide open, rubbing their ears, blinking, not knowing if what they are seeing and hearing is actually happening. And what does Peter do? Does he try and explain the phenomenon? Does he say, let me call out this famous scientist who can explain what has happened? Does he bring out traditional teachers and say, well, we heard that this happened once long ago. No, the very thing that he does to explain an event that is right before their eyes and has their complete attention is he says, let's see what the Bible has to say about this. Think about that. Is that how you view life? When you find out that you are about to have a child or a few children, do you say, this is a miraculous thing, this is a wonderful thing, let's see what the Bible has to say about this. When your son or your daughter comes up to you and says, I'm going to get married, do you say, that's Wonderful. Let's see what the Bible has to say about this. You see, that's what Peter does. He points us to the Word of God because God is sovereign in His Word. It is His Word. And if we want to understand what is going on, we must go to the Scriptures. And Peter does that. He goes here to the book of Joel. And he takes a prophecy of Joel and he uses it to explain... What has just happened? And we see here then that God is authoritative in his Bible in a miraculous way itself. Because Peter doesn't say, you know, God told me. He says, Joel wrote. And then later he says, David as a prophet wrote. And you see, as many of our children know, who wrote the Bible? Holy men 
who were moved by the Holy Spirit. This is how Peter describes it later in his letter. He says that the word of God was written by men as they were brought along by the Holy Spirit. But you see, it is men who wrote the Bible. The Bible did not drop from heaven in full view. It didn't come on plates of gold. The Bible was written by men like you and like me. Superintended by the Holy Spirit. Writing inerrantly, but yet having the same kind of emotions as you and as me. And Joel is that kind of a person. The context for this prophecy of Joel is in a great cry out for restoration and forgiveness. You see, men wrote the Bible. But at the same time, we know that God wrote the Bible. Because the prophet Joel wrote, and in the prophet Joel, God declares. Do you see that? Joel wrote, but God declares in verse 17. And this is how we must view the Bible. The Bible is God's sovereign communication to us. We cannot take it, pick and choose what we would, thrust aside the parts that cause us grievance or a commitment to action. No. We must take all of the Scripture because God is speaking in every bit of the Scripture. Men wrote the Bible, but God wrote the Bible. The Word of God is authoritative. But the Word of God is more than that. The Word of God is perhaps the 21st century's favorite word. It is relevant. Have you ever spoken with someone about the faith? And they say, well, I don't know, you know, this Bible, it's a book that's a few thousand years old. I need to be relevant. I need to speak to the people of our age. There are preachers here in this country that preach from newspapers, from books, from magazines, in an attempt to be relevant. But the Bible is what is exactly relevant. Do you see what Peter does? He takes a prophecy that is at least at least 500 years old for him. And perhaps as much as 900 years old. Now think about that. Almost five times the age of our nation. And he pulls it out as if it's completely relevant for exactly what has happened, this spectacular event today. And the word of God is relevant in three ways here. The first thing that Peter does is he applies the Bible to the events at hand. You see, while others are worried about the miraculous, while others are worried about which language and where did they learn the language, Peter says, no, this isn't really about language. It's about God pouring out His Spirit. It's about God pouring out His Spirit on all so that your sons will prophesy and your daughters will prophesy. Your servants will prophesy. And immediately we are hung up so often in our modern way to say, well, what does prophesy mean? It must mean predict the future. This means that we should put seven-year-olds in our pulpit. Have you ever seen the YouTube video of the five-year-old preacher? Let's put kids in our pulpit. And it must mean that we should all speak in tongues and prophesy. No. You see, what Peter is saying here is, the old age is over in which you needed the prophet of God to bring the word of God to you. 
You wouldn't know God's word. You wouldn't know God's will unless the prophet was there. And so when Elijah leaves town, there is no one who has the word of God. There is no one who understands the word of God. But you see, Peter says, now everyone will know and understand the word of God. How? Because the spirit has been poured out, not just on Elijah, but on you and on me. And not just every man. Oh, no, God will go far further than that. Every man and every woman. Now that is shocking in this day and age. If women were meant to be seen but not heard, that alone was a stretch. But now, Peter says, they will know the word of God. They won't even need a man to teach them. And he goes beyond that. Not only men and women, even your servants. Everyone. You see, the Holy Spirit has now exploded the church and God, through His own sovereign authority, has brought His word to bear on every single member of the church. Everyone. It's why when you go home tonight, you will read the Bible to your children. And you will expect them to learn from it. Oh, perhaps not as much as an adult, but you will expect them to learn. It's why you go to Bible studies, men and women. You expect to learn from the Scriptures. You expect to see the word and have the Holy Spirit guide you. The 50 cent theological term is illumination. But we expect the spirit to teach us the word. We expect to profit from the word. Peter applies the Bible, but then he also interprets the Bible. He does it in an interesting way. Look at verse 17. Peter says, and in these last days it shall be. Now, perhaps you have a Bible like mine that indents this prophecy. Perhaps your translation capitalizes it to show that it's from the Old Testament. But if you put your finger in here and you turn to that passage in Joel 2, we will see something just a little bit different. As we go to Joel chapter 2 and verse 28. And it shall come to pass... Afterwards. Do you see the difference? Keep your finger, go back to Acts. And in these last days. And we go back to Joel. It shall come to pass afterwards. Now that's not much of a difference. Perhaps Peter was a stylist. But you see, as I've told you before, it is the very words of the Bible that make the difference. Each little word. You see, Joel, looking forward, said, It shall come to pass after these things. And Peter says, It's not afterwards anymore. It's now. These are the last days. You see, we tend to think of the last days as when we'll see spectacular wars and Apache helicopters being locusts and and we'll expect the moon to turn to blood before our eyes. But you see... Beloved, you are living right now in the last days. There are no more days. Jesus' coming inaugurates the end. You know, it's famously quoted of Winston Churchill that after uh, the Battle of Britain was won and after victories in Africa were won, he said, you know, this is not the end. It may not even be the beginning of the end, but it is certainly the end of the beginning. And see, in Jesus, 
the beginning of the end has come. These are the last days. We look forward to seeing His kingdom expand, to seeing Him return in glory. The days between His ascension and His second coming are the last days. And do you see the significance of that, not just in its substance, but in the way Peter uses the Word of God. He interprets the Word of God to be relevant to the church exactly where it is. Not in its own self, but in the economy of God. Peter applies the Word, he interprets the Word, and then he also stands on the Word. Because you see, as we said before, there are so many there who would love Nothing more than to shut him up by killing him. The sovereignty of God is seen in declaring that the last days are now. Not only that the Bible is true, but that the Bible speaks about these last days. These last days are the days of Jesus and his kingdom. And what do they point to? You see, the last days of Jesus point to two things. And always two things. The first is they point to a day of judgment. And you see that here. There will be signs, blood, fire in verse 19, vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a day of great judgment. And remember that those who are standing in that audience would be pricked by these words. Because when did the sun turn to darkness? Fifty-three days earlier it did. During our Lord's suffering on the cross, when it became darkness at noon. You see, this is a sign that God is coming in judgment. But the days of Jesus are not just about judgment. They are also about salvation. And you see, that is what is going on here. The whole context of this passage in Joel is about salvation. Joel says in chapter 2, verse 12, just a bit earlier from our quote, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. You see, this call of judgment in Joel and in Peter is to wake up the crowd. It is not simply to say, oh, well, you're really going to get it. That's the type of sermon Jonah wanted to preach. But you see, judgment is always in the context of coming salvation upon repentance why Jonah did not want to go and preach the judgment of God because he had to go with both judgment and a call to repentance and that is how we must take the word of God we must remind all who are in our midst that if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior that you will perish that you will face judgment that is horrific beyond anything you can imagine But there is also salvation found. There is mercy and grace. And this very call to judgment is to stir you, to stir your heart to repentance and salvation. This is how God 
rules over through his word and through the last days. Finally, we see that God is sovereign in his providence. You see, God is the one who is in control. God is acting. He is the one declaring, even though Joel is speaking. He is the one who is acting through Peter. He is the one who sent the Spirit. And God is sovereign, and Peter does not smooth this at all. You see, he says it is Jesus who was delivered up by God. Reminiscent of Paul in eight, Romans 8.32. It is God who delivered up Jesus. The crucifixion did not catch him by surprise. It was not his second plan. It was not an escape hatch. From the beginning of time, from before time was, he had planned to deliver Jesus up. Our text makes that very clear. Peter says here in verse 23 that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan. Have you ever had a definite plan? It's different than sort of having a vague plan, right? When, when, when we go on vacation or we go on a trip, one of the challenges we have, Deb and I, is we have different philosophies about how to go places. Deb likes to go places and to see things and be surprised and just see where the road will take us and see which route we go. And I say, where's the map? I guess I'm the anti-man in that way. But I want the map and I want to know where. I don't like to play things by ear. I want to know where we're going and how long we'll be there. And if it could be written down, twice as good. It is a definite plan. And you see, that is God's plan. He's not making it up as he goes along. He's not saying, oh, this didn't work. Okay, I can try this. God is more than one who sees all of the possibilities. There are not infinite possibilities with God. There is one. Now, that may shock us. We may say... What does this mean? The foreknowledge of God surely means that God knows everything in the future. No, it does not. When Peter says foreknowledge here, it means the same thing in the first chapter of his epistle. It means more than knowing the future. It means foredetermination. It means planning the future. Jesus puts it this way himself in Luke 22. He puts these two concepts together. He says... I can find it. He says, no, I've lost it. I'll paraphrase for you. He says that God has determined beforehand. But you acted, Peter. God determined beforehand what would happen, but you acted. And this is what happens here also in verse 23. You see, you may say, well, of course I know God is sovereign. God knows everything. He's determined everything. That's why it doesn't matter what I do. God's in control. I don't need to make any choices. God will make all my choices for me. I'm a robot. Or perhaps you've heard someone accuse you of being a robot. But you see, Peter will have none of this. Peter says, yes, God, by his determined plan, by his foreknowledge, but he said, but you, with wicked and lawless hands crucified him do you notice that he doesn't say as god's instruments you know we like to use that kind of phraseology he says with wicked sin-stained blood-dripping hands 
you determined in your heart to cruelly put him to death as a measure of your rebellion against God. You see, God is completely sovereign. He has numbered every hair on your head. But man is responsible, completely and fully, morally culpable. Now, how does that work? Well, I'll tell you. I don't know. But that's what the Word of God says. And so don't ever take the tiniest bit of God's sovereignty away from Him. Not the smallest. But don't ever use that as an excuse to do what you want or to disobey. No, no. Peter says these two things lay side by side. They are perfect. And Peter says this in what is perhaps the most un-PC of un-PC ways. You see, we are often afraid to speak of God's sovereignty because people will get uncomfortable in America. Think about standing up and telling people who just put Jesus to death that it is their fault that they have crucified the Lord of glory. Yikes. The silence would be, is the mic on? But you see, Peter has to testify to the sovereignty God. He then begins to preach upon the work of Jesus Christ. And he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. This Jesus who was delivered up. You see, first he begins to describe Jesus' ministry. Now, notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't begin to speak of Jesus, the wonderful teacher, and all of the things that he taught. Do you notice that? That's where the world begins. The golden rule. Do unto others. Right? Turn the other cheek. All of the wonderful teachings of Jesus. But Peter doesn't start there at all. He starts at the ministry of Jesus. The emphasis is not upon what Jesus has said, but who Jesus is. And he says, he worked all these miraculous works. The word there is very powerful. The word there is the same word about the power that would come from the Holy Spirit. It's that dynamite. And he says, Jesus did these mighty works. And there would be people in the audience that would say, you know, I was there when he fed a whole crowd of us. Must have been 5,000 of us. And someone else would say, well, you haven't seen anything. I was there when he made a man who was blind he could see. And then someone else would say, yeah, you didn't see him take somebody out of the grave when his sisters were crying. And you see, Peter says, he did all these works and you saw them. You have no excuse. You have seen them. And this is true of us today, isn't it? Because we see the effects of the work of Christ even 2,000 years later. We see it in his church and in his people. We have books and libraries because the church preserved them through the dark ages. Hospitals exist because the church founded them. You see, even in our society, we see the work of Jesus. And we see it in changed lives. We see it in the drunk who is sober. We see it in the bitter, angry man who is now sweet and tender with his children. We see it in the rebellious youth who now seeks to serve others. We see the work of Jesus 
everywhere. And it shouldn't surprise us because Peter says, not only have you seen it, God saw it, and God attested to those works. Jesus is a man who was attested to by God. And this word attested means his works and his person were put on display. He was proclaimed by God to be who he was. And God did those works through him. And so it should not surprise us that on Pentecost, the works of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus would be explained, displayed, put before our eyes. But Peter doesn't just want to preach about Jesus' ministry. He also wants to preach about his death and his resurrection. And he describes his death in a very startling and biblical way. He doesn't say, God raised him up from the dead because he deserved it, even though he did. He doesn't say, God raised him up from the dead because he wanted to help people, even though he did. He says, God raised him up from the dead because death could not hold him. You see, who Jesus is, is greater than death. Now, you need to hear that, especially when you're sick. Or especially when you think fondly on one who has gone on to glory. You need to hear that Jesus is greater than death. It's not just that he happened to rise up from the dead. He must rise up from the dead because there is no other option. Jesus Christ has defeated death for the last time. This is who Jesus is. And this is a fulfillment of the very promise of God. You see, that's what Peter does when he quotes Psalm 16. Here at verse 27, he says, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. And by Hades there, he means the grave. And Peter has a zinger. Peter is like a cross-examination attorney. And he's got a zinger in his back pocket that the witness doesn't know that he's going to use. And he walks up to him and he says, you know what? That's not David. His tomb is right over there. Go over and walk over and look at it. If they'd let you, you could take the top off the tomb and you'd see his bones. He's right there. He's dead. He's rotting. David's not talking about himself. He's a prophet. He's speaking about Jesus. Jesus who has defeated death and is risen from the grave. And he says, we are the witnesses of this. We have seen it. There's only one empty tomb. Jesus is dead. Jesus was dead. But he is risen. And then Peter concludes here at verse 34 with another quote from Psalm 110.1. Now this little quote you may not think is that significant but it is the most quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament, hands down. It is used at least 25 times, upwards of 30 if you count non-direct quotes or allusions in the New Testament. Basically, the apostles love this quote. Why? Because it speaks of the exaltation of Jesus. It speaks of that ascension that we saw. You see, oftentimes we are fixated on the resurrection, but the apostles want us to see not just a living, risen Jesus, but a living, reigning Jesus. He is seated at the right hand. 
His enemies are being made his footstool. You see, this is the contrast between the judgment of men that said crucify him and the judgment of God that says Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Jehovah. This is what challenges us today. Jesus is not just some teacher. He must be your Lord. He must be the one whose voice you obey. That is who Jesus is. After Peter has described how God is sovereign in the works of Scripture and providence, and then he's described the work of our Lord Jesus Christ in his ministry, in his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation, he then begins to preach the call to salvation. And I'll be brief because Peter is. He says three things. He says, I've got some bad news for you. I've got some good news for you. And you'll need to testify. And he says, the bad news is this, people. You rejected the one whom the Lord made Lord. You rejected the Messiah. You didn't just reject him. You put him to death. You did the most despicable thing that anyone has ever done. You denied what God has said is true. He says, you are wicked and filthy beyond all imagination. Now, this is boldness. Peter doesn't even work up to this in the crowd. And you see, as a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ, I could say the same thing to you. Children, you have not honored your parents. I know it. First of all, I've seen you. And secondly, I know my own heart. Wives, you have not obeyed your husbands. I know you haven't. Husbands, you have not loved your wives as Jesus loved the church. You have not honored your neighbor. You have not forgiven 70 times 7. You are all wicked sinners. And I know this personally because I am a wicked sinner. You would not want to be a fly on my wall. That's the bad news. And they are cut to the core, the scripture says. But interestingly enough, there's another passage we'll look at later in which the hearers are also cut to the heart. It's after another sermon in Acts 7. Where Stephen preaches. And they respond by being cut to the heart and stoning him to death. But you see here, there's not just bad news, there is also good news. You see, in verse 36, the good news is that Jesus is made both Lord and Christ. And you say, well, that's bad news because now we've crucified the Lord. And the answer is, but he is the one who holds forgiveness in his hand. That's who he is. He is Lord. He has the power to forgive And all of the wickedness of your sins, every sin that you think will keep you from Jesus, how you just need to clean up your act just a little bit better before you can start to think about Jesus. Peter says Jesus is Lord. He has the power to forgive the most heinous of sins. He has the power to forgive his own crucifixion. That sort of puts I lie a lot in perspective, doesn't it? It sort of puts, I don't love my spouse as much as I should, in perspective. 
Jesus has the power to forgive sins. And he not only has the power to forgive, Peter says. You see, you might think you would write a hymn. Jesus can forgive me, the wretched wretch, the worm of the worms, the lowest of the lows, and I will always remain there, groveling in the dirt and in the sand. And Peter says, no. Not only can he forgive you, he can give you the same spirit that I have. The same spirit to speak boldly in his name. But he says, there is something you must do. You must repent. You must change your mind. You must change your direction. You must take hold of that salvation. This is the work of God. Only God can do it. Even bringing the message to them was the work of God. If it took the Holy Spirit to speak the words of salvation, surely it must take the Holy Spirit to hear and apply the words of salvation. Because God is sovereign. How many plans does God have? One. How definite is it? It's written in triplicate. It's definite. God is in control of everything. And he commands you to repent. This is what Peter calls this 3002. It's what I call you to right now. If you have been playing games with Jesus, cleaning up your face a bit, putting on a nice pair of clothes, walking around with a fake smile on your face, then now is the time to repent. You need Jesus more than you need a good face. And if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, guess what? Now is the time to repent. To put off the old sins. To put on the new man. You see, this is what we are called to do. And it leads to our last point. The last thing that Peter says about the call to salvation. He says, I had bad news for you. I brought you good news. And now guess what? You must testify. You must bring your testimony. You see, this is the other part about Pentecost. Not only is everybody there, they're all going to leave again. They're going to be gospel contagious. And the people in their towns don't have those little white masks. They're going to talk about the power of the Holy Spirit. They're going to talk about the forgiveness of sins, personal forgiveness of sins. And this is what Peter says. Peter says, I am testifying to the goodness of God. You must testify to the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter tells you, Christian, through the ages, you must testify to the work of Jesus Christ and the call to salvation. You must. And do you see how they received it? They received it with gladness and with joy. That is what the church is meant to be about. Not sour-faced, humdrum, people walking around muttering about things you have to believe. No, it's singing gladness and joy about forgiveness found in the work of Jesus Christ as a part of the plan of the sovereign God of the universe. Are you ready for that challenge, Christian? That's what the Lord has laid on our doorstep. And he lays it on our doorstep every day. Let's pray.